Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Okay, we ready to jump in the Word? It's like 10% of us. Are we ready to jump in the Word? It was Nick. Pastor Nick is ready. <laughs> Guys, it, this is Romans 12, okay? It, it is no surprise, it should not be a surprise, that from the day that we, had be, that we began this journey through this incredible book, that I was looking forward to that morning when we would arrive at Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is that day, okay? I was joking around this morning with people, I'm like, I've waited my entire life for this moment right here, okay? Uh, we, we, I'm, I, we, I'm excited, okay? Can't tell. I'm excited for this. And, and we should be as well, because today we not only reach a significant place of transition in Paul's letter to the church in and around Rome, but we reach two verses that have served to mark major places of transition in people's lives as well. When we consider passages like Romans 12, 1 and 2, we can be confident that we're dealing with verses that the Lord has used to transform hearts and minds. And I would certainly be no exception to that. Uh, If you would be willing to indulge me for a moment here this morning as we begin, I'll share with you just a little bit of my own journey and why I am so passionate about these particular verses. See, I just turned 19 years old. I was in my freshman year of college, uh, second semester. Uh, I had finally given my life to Jesus earlier that year in the fall. for years, uh, my, enti- my entire life really, uh, up to that point, uh, until this sunny fall afternoon where I gave my life to Christ, had been spent with a knowledge of Jesus, but a belief that my good works, my efforts at self-righteousness, were what a relationship with Jesus was really all about. But it was simply religion. It was no relationship with Christ. But in the circumstances that surrounded my first few weeks at college, the Holy Spirit had exposed my pharisaical heart. I had become aware in that moment of my desperate need for forgiveness, of a desire for an authentic relationship with Jesus, and I gave my life to Christ. Up to that point, I had convinced myself that I was good enough, righteous enough, worked hard enough to be just good enough. And so here in this this moment, and I can still remember it like it was yesterday, it was beautiful fall weather, it was a warm afternoon. Where I was, I don't entirely know. I was somewhere west of Crawfordsville, Indiana, somewhere across the Illinois state line. There in that moment, I had surrendered to Christ. My days of living my life for myself were over, or were they? You see, this time in my life was marked by radical transformation. Here I had thought I was a Christian living a life that was pleasing to him, and then I get saved and realize nearly everything about my life needed to change. The very early days of my walk with Christ were amazing. 
as with great boldness, I put off the old man, shed the old man, including habits, language, music, and movies that were no longer in my life, even relationships, unhealthy friendships, living circumstances, so many of these things with great faith, I let them go and trusted God to bring new things, things pleasing to Him into my life, and He did with great faithfulness. In seemingly short order, much of my B.C. life was gone, transformed. But then came some of the harder stuff. What of God's plans and desires for my life? What of His plans for my future? What of this relationship with a woman that I loved? We'd been together for a long time at this point. Was this relationship trending toward marriage? Was it indeed, was... was this the relationship that God had in store? What of the things that God had created me to do? Was it his desire for me that I, and what was my desire at the time, to, to simply get an education so that I could get a good job and make a lot of money and live a good life? Is that what he wanted for me? You see, as a, as a young man now who had determined in his heart to live for Jesus, I was faced with not only seeking to discern God's will, to understand, God, what's your will for my life? But also with whether or not I would even surrender every aspect of my life to that will. It's one thing to know and understand the will of God. It's another to say, I'll do it. I mean, after all, I'd really cleaned up my act, God. I'm living a pretty good life now, a life that's certainly got to be pleasing to you. Can't I keep some of these things? Can't I still have some of my plans? I promise I'll serve you in them. This was the thought that often went through my mind. So here was second semester of my freshman year. Uh, An incredible few months had had passed. Would take all day and you don't want to hear it all but me it's exciting the ways in which God was working in in my life and, and those around me creating uh, so much change, fostering relationships, doing things that I, I, I never thought he could do. And so it was an incredible time. Much change had taken place. This young lady in my life, she too had gotten saved about the same time, gone through her own experience of radical transformation. She too seeking to discern God's will. Me even more so wondering, am I a part of that plan? Oh, Lord, I hope I'm a part of that plan. And then I was given a book, Life on the Edge, A Young Adult's Guide to a Meaningful Future by Dr. James Dobson. Some of you know that name. Some of you don't. (laughs) It shows how time has passed. The book was exactly what I needed. It was in reading this book and searching the scriptures that I began to, to come to a deeper understanding of what it meant to live my life for Jesus. It was far more than simply allowing Jesus to clean up my life and to spare me from judgment. It was about choosing to really live my life for Him, to surrender my plans, my desires in exchange for His. It was during this time that God brought me to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And by His Spirit, He showed me the significance of this exhortation and what it meant for my life. 
It's where I first came to terms, not just with what it is that God had done for me, but what that then meant about how my life should change in response. To begin to truly consider all the things that God had done and how my life should change as a result beyond many of the superficial things or seemingly superficial. And what what we're going to do today is to consider this same pattern. That as we look at this passage here today, as we consider what Paul has done to make clear what it is that God has done for us, we must... This also should not be a surprise to you that we're going to slow down a good bit on this particular passage. And I'll come back throughout and share a little bit more around what it is that God showed me and how He worked in my life at that young age and even is working still. And I hope that that will be an encouragement to you. But today, we come, at least from my perspective, to some pretty sacred ground in His Word. That if we'll allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts today, might find ourselves in a new place of surrender. Let's read together in verses 1 and 2. In the New King James Version, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray once more if you would. Father, we pause again here as we look to your word and we give you thanks for it. And Lord, I would ask once again that as we study here this morning, that you, I know, Lord, having already met us here in this place, would continue to move and work to bring understanding, to bring conviction, to bring encouragement, to bring necessary transformation, Lord, to our hearts and minds. We would be a surrendered people. That we could lay claim to these verses and know, Lord, that these are indicative of our own lives. And so whatever, Lord, needs to be done here today in each of us individually as well as corporately, Lord, may it be done, we pray. May it be to Your glory. May we leave this place, Lord, different. Surrendered people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins once again stating, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now I know using the New King James Version here, that some of us look at this and we say, I don't say beseech you. I don't, I don't really communicate that way. As I shared in first service, I think it'd be cool if some people did. Um, I'd respect that. Uh, but Paul's using language here that helps us to see that he is beginning to make uh, an exhortation. This is a challenge. As has been stated, we're now at a turning point in this letter. Paul is now exercising what's called an imperative. He is seeking to tell us what to do. This isn't him just giving us a suggestion. This isn't him saying, if you feel like it, if you want to. This is him saying, this is what you should do. Now he says, I beseech you therefore, which joins this imperative to the indicatives of the previous 11 chapters. What am I saying? Stated differently here, Paul is saying, based on everything that I've told you up until this point, I'm now urging you to do something. Now before we look at what it is that he's telling us to do, let's consider then what it is that he has already told us. What is the therefore, therefore? 
What is the basis of the exhortation? Paul says, by the mercies of God. Now, some translations render this in view of God's mercy. And so the therefore, the things that Paul has already stated in the preceding 11 chapters that serve as the foundation, the basis for his exhortation are the mercies of God. It's in view of these mercies that Paul is going to challenge us. And so let's consider, what are they? What are those mercies? Mercy itself. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Now lest you misunderstand, don't think that as, oh, something's unfair, I wanted that and I didn't get it. No, rest assured, you didn't want it. When we're talking about mercy, it means that there was something bad that could happen to you and it didn't, you were shown mercy. Mercy is compassion. It's forgiveness that's shown toward someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. God has every right to punish and harm us, but he doesn't. He shows us mercy. Mercy is an event that we are to be grateful for because it prevents something unpleasant from happening. Anybody fan of mercy in here? Okay, praise the Lord. You did better than first service, right? We we needed to come to a better understanding of mercy. What are these mercies? What what is it that Paul is referring to? I'm going to begin for us, and I just want to share some of these here this morning. I I won't even begin to scratch the surface of, of a survey of the mercies that have been demonstrated towards us by God. I'll just hit a few of them. Beginning in Romans chapter 3, in verses 23 and 24, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You have been shown mercy in that you are a sinner, you've fallen short of the glory of God, yet you have been justified freely. Amen? We're going to have to get better, guys. We're going to have to keep going here. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified, there it is again, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Wait a second. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of God's grace. I'm deserving of death, yet I've been justified. I have peace now with God. I have access to grace and I now have a hope as well. That's mercy. He goes on, verse 8, 9 of chapter 5, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. That is mercy. Are Are you writing these down? Are you taking mental note? Do you have these memorized already? What I want you to understand here this morning is that what Paul is saying is these are the very truths in the Word of God that are the basis for your understanding that your life is no longer your own. That literally your life is to be transformed, changed entirely. It's metamorphosis is what it speaks of. And the reason for it are these words that I'm reading here this morning. Are you, do you allow these things by the Spirit to pierce your heart and your mind. That when you hear it, do you find yourself overwhelmed? We must. He goes on, chapter 6, verses 4. Excuse me, verse 4. Therefore we were buried with Him 
through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Chapter 7, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Chapter 8, verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Further, in verse 39, nothing, he states, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's not done yet. There's more. He continues on over and over and over again. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 11, But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Mercy after mercy after mercy after mercy. And and, and when we read uh, such passages, if we aren't moved, if we don't have a sense of, God, I can't believe that you've done that for me, that in fact, yes, Lord, you have shown me great mercy, then there's a problem. There's a problem there. Because chances are we've convinced ourselves that we didn't really need it. These are the mercies. The basis for the action that Paul is calling us to are God's mercies. And Paul says, because of these things, for 11 chapters, he's built it up. He's laid out the case. He says, because God has done all of these things for you, not just the church that was there in and around Rome. He's saying, you, this morning, you sitting there, by his living and active and powerful word, it's being declared to you, he's done these things for you. And because of this, He's urging us to do something. What is that thing? He finishes by saying that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That is the action. Listen, once again, Paul has said that because of what God has done, because of his mercies, because he has not given you what you deserve, you are to present all of yourself, your whole body, in a ritual presentation of sacrifice to where all of you is completely consumed by Him. You see, culturally, they would have been very familiar at this time with the idea of ritual sacrifice. So it would not have been lost on them the significance of what Paul was saying. That indeed their whole life was to be surrendered to God laid upon the altar, as it were. But differently than the pagan cultures and even that of a Jewish understanding of temple sacrifice, this sacrifice, as Paul states, is a living sacrifice, meaning that what he is doing here is bringing a New Testament understanding, applying this to the concept of sacrifice. And, and, and what we see then in this is that now sacrifice is Christian service. It's our lives lived for Him, offered to Him, given to Him. Giving all of my life to Him to be used by Him and for Him and for His glory. This is what Paul is calling us to. And so then, such a sacrifice is living, as Paul states, but it's also 
holy and acceptable to God. Holy, holiness. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, quoting from Leviticus, he states, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Christian, we are called to holiness. Now, this is different than the holiness movement that we see within the church today. What this is, is just about recognizing that we are called to be set apart. That we are to be sanctified. And this happens, this is initiated, it's a work of the Spirit, but it comes through the repenting of our sins. Recognizing, Lord, I am a sinner, I believe in you, I'm... I'm expressing faith in you for the forgiveness of my sins. And when that happens in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a new believer, they are now set apart. And we need to continue to walk in that. To continue to repent of our sins. To allow God to search our hearts to see if there's any wicked way in us. So not only are we to be holy, but also acceptable to God. What kind of a sacrifice is acceptable to God? Psalmist writes in Psalm 51:17 that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. You see, this is a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. When this work is accomplished in us and we're brought to a place of absolute surrender before Him where we do give all of ourselves as a living sacrifice. How do we get to this place? Well, we know His mercies. If we know His mercies, then we know that everything that's being described here becomes a logical conclusion. It becomes the next step, which is exactly what Paul states at the end of verse 1. He says, which is your reasonable service? What's being described here isn't some sort of far-off aspiration that's largely unattainable, but rather what is expected of every individual. Reasonable here in the Greek is logikos. It's where we get our word logical. What Paul is saying here, if we sort of put this back together, is I urge you, because of the mercy God has shown you, offer your lives to Him. Give Him your life. It's what makes sense. It's logical. Once again, if you truly know the mercy that you have been shown, then this is the response. So if you're not responding, then there is an issue with your understanding. You have not truly considered the mercies of God. Whether you have failed to explore it, or because of pride in your life and in your heart, you once again have suggested that His mercies are not necessary for you. Because you're okay. Because you do a a lot of good things. Because you work really hard. Because I was doing all the things that a Christian is supposed to do. So then why must I give him every part? Because I didn't properly understand or refuse to understand the mercies that had been demonstrated towards me. If we know his mercies, there's a logical conclusion. Now this portion of the verse can also be translated worship. That is, the word service there, and some of your translations, if you have a different translation this morning, may render it that way, that it reads worship. That this is your reasonable worship. 
And so we could state this differently then to say that an understanding of his mercies logically produces right worship. So then you can say that not offering your life to him in absolute surrender is a worship problem and ultimately a sin problem. We sang this morning, as we always do, but specifically this morning we sang a song. It was the last one. We sang about every part. Did you sing that song this morning? Well, it's a, it's a newer song. I didn't really know it. Well, the words were on the screen, so we just took care of that part, right? Well, you know, it didn't have drums. I like the drums. And some people are like, well, I... But I do like the drums. I wish I had the drums. You know, I, I wish we didn't have the drums. I wish we do have the drums. The song wasn't in the right key. I, I'm not a big fan of singing. You know, the singing part is just, I know I sound like I'm mocking. Because I am, I guess, a little bit. Because it's foolishness. Because it shows when we have that mindset and that heart set that we don't understand what worship is. That yes, there is a time for praise where certainly uh, songs that we really enjoy allow us to, man, I love, the, I love this song and it gets me moving and it gets me excited and, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But the whole reason we do this at the beginning of the service, the whole reason is not just because it's like, well, it's nice for, for us to have a little bit of music before the message. It's a time of worship. And if we are doing our jobs right, we being the worship team, those who are part of the service, by working in such a way that we can, we can lead you into worship, meaning we've emptied ourselves of anything that's, that's not of Him, and we've rid ourselves of a desire for selfish gain, that, that we would be the object of the worship. If, if our hearts are right, and it's Spirit-led worship, then we can play a role in then leading the congregation into a place of worship, not so that you can have the experience of singing, but so that you can have the experience of surrendering, of getting your heart right, of getting to a place where the Lord wants you to be so that you can receive his word and by his Holy Spirit allow it to change your life. That's what it's for. And it's for us to have the opportunity to tell God, thank you, just as we do in that song, so that you can get to a place where you're not worried about what key it is or what instrument you wish was included or wasn't included, and instead be able to say, every part, Lord. Where everybody else begins to disappear, and you can begin to just say, Lord, this is for me. Lord, I have held back from you something that you've wanted, and it's not right. Lord, I've put my life on that altar. I've offered myself to you and I take it back. I, I crawl off the altar all the time, Lord. And I'm sorry. And I know that you want every part of me. You want to, with your radical grace, to invade every aspect of my life, to bring necessary transformation, to make me more like you, to use me for your glory. And Lord, I want that and I'm sorry. And I repent, Lord. And would you, would you do this work in my life? And, and Lord, speak to me through your word today. You could say something like that. Or whatever else the Lord puts on your heart, but that time is for that. It's for us to reflect. It's for us to be, to be readied by his spirit for what he has for us. So did you sing it this morning? Did you mean it? If you didn't, repent of it. Allow the Lord to change your heart and your mind towards these things. You see, for me as that young man, and I will say sadly, even still today, 
there is often a gap between understanding his mercies and what that means for me. There's often even still today in my own life a worship problem, which is ultimately a sin problem. It's a pride problem. It's a selfishness problem. It's a self-righteousness problem. It's something in my life that, that, that I allow to convince me that part of my life or this little area of my life or all of my life, that it's mine, that I have the right, that I'm justified, that I get to hang on to it. But the problem is, as Paul points out, that's illogical. That doesn't make sense. And so what I must recognize then is sin has made me stupid and I'm resisting what he wants to do in my life. Maybe it's only me. You see, what I've done in that moment is exactly what Paul commands in the negative here at the beginning of verse 2 when he says, and do not be conformed to this world. What does it mean to be conformed to the world? You see, so often, and I think we do this with a lot of things in Scripture, we look at stuff like this and we keep it so surface level. You don't want to be conformed to the world. I don't want to sort of look like the world. And, and, and I've heard people even talk about you know, the, the clothes that they buy or don't buy is in an effort to try and not be conformed to the world. And, and maybe there is a certain element of truth in that. I'm not saying that's not the case, but we have got to go deeper than that. Paul here, as he continues his imperative, this time he states it in the negative, meaning he says do not versus do. So he says, do not be conformed to this world. Now, conformed here, this word comes from the, the Greek word, or at its root at least, the Greek word is schema, or translated schemes. And world here could be translated rightly, age. So Paul, in many respects here, is, is saying, do not be conformed to the schemes of this passing evil age. I think that is a perfect translation of that passage. James chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And of course then you have people who say, I'm not conformed to the world and I'm not a friend of the world. It's, people will say, I'm not, I'm not me. That's not me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm my own thinker. I carve my own path. I'm independent. I'm a, I'm a free thinker. Do you, think it, do you ever find it kind of comical that we could go into a room and we could say, who are all the free thinkers? And we could put them in a group and they would be kind of similar. Does anybody ever find that sort of thing funny? I'm my own person, you know, and it's like, you look like all those other persons who say they're their own, their own person. Why do I say that? Not to make fun of somebody who says they're a free thinker. That's not my intention. It's that we don't even pay attention sometimes to how easily we get sucked into the schemes of the world. And we want to look at things so superficially as to sort of define it like that and not even realize that we are all individuals created in the image of God by the same God and we have similarities and so some of those things are just going to naturally be there and we've got to look beyond some of that superficial stuff. Furthermore, as I've stated already, it's easy for us to get sucked in and so not being conformed to the schemes of this present evil age requires practice. It's a process. It requires surrender, if we haven't talked about that already, that we need to be on guard because the world sucks you in. It sucks you in in so many ways. 
what does that have to do with even my, my own issues of, uh, uh, of, of sin and rebellion? Because it's all the things that the world tells you or it's perspectives that you've, that you've adopted or ways in which you can kind of convince yourself that you're right, but it's rooted in things contrary to the Word of God. And it's easy, too, to just look at our world right now, certainly, and talk about all the different ways in which these evil schemes are sucking people in. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it today, but it's worth at least just unpacking a little bit. Has anybody noticed that no matter what the issue is, you think of any issue you want right now that makes your blood pressure go up a little bit, that you read about in the news, and tell me that it's not politicized? I don't know that I, in first service I said all, everything, or something to that effect is is politicized. Nobody challenged me on it, but I myself said, I know that I'm not supposed to use the word all. But it's hard for me to find something that doesn't somehow fit into or is attempted to fit into that camp. And we could break down every one of these issues and find people, no doubt even in this room, who on these various issues would become passionate and say, well, it's this, or it's this. That's a right side view or that's a left side view. That's conservative, that's liberal. And we spend all day long, some people arguing and trying to put these things in different camps and very little time, oftentimes, in those moments saying, this is what the Word of God says. And I don't care what they say or what they say, this is what the Word says. And that's what we're going to stand on. And you can take even many of the hot button issues And as Christians, much of it, we should be able to go, yeah, I could agree with that, and no, I don't disagree with that. And people don't want to say that these days because they're they're very concerned about getting canceled or run over or whatever. I'll lose my job for this, or this will happen, or this will happen. But we, as Christians, are called to be a people who go, look, this is what I stand on. This is truth. This is what I will fiercely defend. This is what I will use to confront the issues of the age that I will not live in fear, that I, will be, that, that, that I will be a person who sees every other individual as made in the image of God. I won't expect unsaved people to act like they're saved, and so I'll approach them with, with mercy and with grace and with the truth of the gospel, desiring that they be saved, not that I change their political opinions, that I'm going to go forth as a representative of Jesus Christ because at the, because at the end of the day, I don't live here. This isn't my home. My eyes are fixed on my eternal home. That there will come a day when he will come for me, whether he takes me home or whether he comes for his church. We will be with him. I will no longer be a pilgrim traveling through this world, but we will be home. Amen? And so let's be about, let's be about rejecting the evil schemes of the world. Let's break out of the cycle of being constantly sucked into it. And let's stand on the word of God. And focus on looking at this world, not through the lens that's being held in front of your eyes, because it's there, but the one that's created by God. How do we do this? The imperative continues now in the positive, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are to be transformed. We're not to be conformed, transformed. This word transformation is more literally translated, as I mentioned earlier, metamorphosis. This speaks of a permanent change from one thing to another, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. We are to be transformed. Now, here is one of the greatest encouragements for you this morning, okay? This word here, transformation, are you ready for this? Are you sure? This is super encouraging. This word transformation is a 
present passive imperative. <laughs> it's good. Somebody asked this time. I, some of you are like, that is super encouraging. <laughs> yes, it is. But we have an honest one who's like, what does that mean? It means this. Passive means that it's not an action that you complete. Present tense means that it's ongoing. It's not done. It means that this is a work God does in you and is doing and will continue to do until he completes it. Amen. It just requires that you surrender. It requires that you say, Lord, every part, it's yours. How does he then do it? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. Paul said of the, of the world back in Romans 1.28 that they were given over to a debased mind. But of his children, he said that ours would be renewed by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, Paul writes that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. He would go on then to write in Ephesians 5.26 of Christ and the work that Christ does for His church, which is us, Christian, that He would, by the washing of the water of the Word, might sanctify, that is, set apart and make holy, and cleanse her, His church. And so we then look to the Word, which is exactly what Jesus said He would do. We fix our attention on Him. We allow even being here this morning that the, 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 the Word of God serves to wash us, to cleanse our mind from all the filth out there. And that you go to life groups and in smaller groups you go to the Word and let the Word wash you. And, and, and you get involved in men's and women's studies and you have your personal devotional time. You wake up early in the morning and even in those mornings when you go, man, it's dark and it's early and it's cold. Whatever it is, right? Whatever it is that's keeping you from, from going, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender in this moment when God says, come on, I want time with you. And you go to His Word and you allow Him to wash you, to renew your mind. This is the part of that transformation. And so we must, listen, we must fix our attention on Him. We must consider what we put in. It's a simple input-output thing. Garbage in, garbage out. And so we do need to be diligent in these things. Do you open up Netflix and you hit the top ten? Oh, this is what everybody's watching. Why? Because it's a bunch of sinners watching for one. And don't call me a conspiracy theorist that they aren't using other things to go, and I'm going to desensitize you to this, and I'm going to infiltrate your home with this, and I'm going to get you to be comfortable with this. But it's the top ten. If I don't watch it, somebody else is going to talk about it, and I'm not going to know what they're talking about. Who cares? Who cares? Social media, man, it's really a drag on my life, but I've got to stick with it. Why? Why? Listen, I won't... Be careful preaching and teaching, right? But I would beg of you, why? Because you're so close with those people on social media that if you don't see what they post today, your life is over? Or might you go, man, this isn't worth it anymore. You, Lord, all I want is you. You can have every part. Why? Paul concludes that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do you want something else? Do you want something other than that? Do you want to prove something else out? Do you want to prove a ruined life? 
Do you want to prove what, what the effects of the world does? Do you want, you want your life to be a social experiment or the reflection of a biblical truth? That we become, through this process, people whose lives can testify to Him and people who are able, get this, able to discern His will. That when you have, have offered Him every part of your life, that you, you've looked to His mercies and said, Lord, this is the logical conclusion. I'm giving you my life. Holy, pleasing, acceptable. That you can with confidence then say, Lord, and I know what you want from me. I can live my life in obedience to you. I can rightly discern, Lord, your will. As that young man, this verse aided me in surrendering to the call of ministry. I'm not saying I'm special for it. I just know it was necessary for me to get to that place where I said, okay, Lord. It would also aid me in doing something crazy and asking that young lady I was praying would also discern that I was, in fact, the, the man for her to go and ask her to marry me. And she said no, and I had to chase her around. And No, she didn't say no. She said yes. And i got to be careful how I, how I say this because in first service they asked me, today would be 25 years, not since I asked her to marry me, 25 years since she checked yes. I told you we were together a long time before college. Those were BC days, okay? So we celebrate them for what God has done. 25 years though. And I wish I could stand here and say that that day where these words jumped off the page and got a hold of my heart and my mind, and I said, Lord, I surrender. I'd already given my life to Christ, but Lord, I surrender my life to you every part, Lord. Here it is on the altar. I wish I could stand here and say that that was a one-time event and never needed to happen again. But even recently in my own life, the Lord has brought me to a place of recognizing a worship problem in my life, a sin problem in my life, an area where I was failing to consider His mercies toward me and what was then logically required in terms of my surrender to Him, an area of my life that He had said, I want that part, but I had justified myself. I had fallen victim to the evil schemes of the world and the prince of the power of the air, but that wasn't an area of my life that even needed considered. Now, that's me. And I'm not a prophet, but I can't help but to think that today there's some of you here that need to do the same. We'll get to the remainder of chapter 12 next Sunday, and really then through almost to the end of the book, what we'll look at is what Paul says, based then on offering your body a living sacrifice, here's what your life should look like. Here's the conduct of a Christian. Here's how you should behave. Here's how you should care for one another. And so I'd encourage you certainly read ahead. Allow the Lord to search your own heart as you consider those things, to ask yourself, does, does my life match this? But before we look forward, as Paul has done, I would challenge us, look back. Consider his mercies, what he's done for you, and allow the logical conclusion to be drawn in your own life as to the surrender that's warranted from you. As I've mentioned already, living sacrifices like to crawl off the altar. In my own life, I've realized it needs to be a process each and every morning. What is it that you need to lay before the Lord again and say, God, this is yours? He deserves every part, does he not, in view of his mercy? Let's pray. Father, we pause once again, and Lord, we do. We, we reflect on, as we are encouraged to do so, your mercies. And in view of those mercies, God, how significant they are, Lord, help us then to be a people who respond, who say, yes, Lord, my life is yours. I lay it upon the altar, holy, acceptable. Lord, it is the logical conclusion. Nothing else makes sense. 
but to give you my life. Lord, I don't want to be conformed any longer to the schemes of this world. The enemy has come to steal, to kill, to destroy. You, Lord, came to have life. Give us life that we may have it abundantly. Lord, I want that. So, Lord, help us to be transformed, changed, that we might be a people who can prove to the world that you are God, that you are good. We can be a people who can discern your will and live in obedience to you. Do that work in us here, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.